Empire. Are you ready for some football? I mean, really ready. Right now, we know through epidemiology studies that we're missing upwards of 80% of all concussions that are happening um, on the practice fields or on game days. That's Harold Stelzer, CEO and co-founder of Nomo Diagnostics. They're working to make head injury more visible and treatable. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. This past week in sports has been dominated by a headline, star receiver Antonio Brown's insistence to wear a helmet that is deemed less safe by the NFL than the more modern versions. His qualms with these new helmets include less peripheral vision, and considering the game he plays, that is a valid discussion point. You have to see what's coming in tackle football. This week, we're going to deep dive into dealing with head injury with Harold Stelzer, and Dr. Daniel Danishvar of Crash Course, a program that wants to help athletes advocate for themselves by understanding their own symptoms. And we'll end today on a more positive note when we speak with Blake Lawrence, who went from Nebraska Cornhusker to entrepreneur and is connecting fans and brands to athletes. But first, our discussion with Harold Stelzer. Contact sports, but most notably football, are continuing to deal with what might be the most pressing issue that could affect its longevity, head injuries. The NFL was slow to acknowledge the effects of concussions on players, and this has filtered down to college, high school, youth leagues, and a variety of changes to equipment, rules, and training practices have followed, but what will never be the case is avoiding them entirely. Detecting them quickly, that's what we're on the cusp of. Harold Stelzer is a co-founder and CEO of Nomo Diagnostics. Hi, Harold. How are you? I'm just fine. And you, Bram? Great. Um, What do you guys do? So we're specifically looking for early signs of concussion detection. And that is done through a wearable brainwave monitoring system that can be embedded in helmets, headgear, and headbands. Why are these things not in those items yet? It's largely a technology barrier that uh, only recently has been overcome with a combination of small uh, microelectronics, dry electrode sensors, uh, and the ability to transmit this fast and in real time. So that is the primary reason why it hasn't been done to date. But you've gotten past this barrier is what you're suggesting. We've gotten past this barrier, and we protected the intellectual property around how we're able to accomplish this uh, so that we can create not only a wearable, a high-fidelity wearable system, but also the first database uh, that's ever been produced of real wa- uh, real-time uh, brainwaves. So having this technology in a helmet, headgear, headband, whatever it may be, it will give trainers and doctors what? So the idea is to be able to have a fully autonomous monitoring system. Imagine a neurologist uh, or an epileptologist being able to look constantly at brainwaves. We can do this through a machine-learned algorithm. 
based on the uh, database that we'll collect and the microcircuitry that will be able to process what we're doing and relay this, in, uh, this information in real time to uh, the sideline. So the first line of defense is usually an athletic trainer that's measuring and monitoring individuals during practices and game day. Uh, we'll be able to retain this information and have it stored longitudinally so that sports physicians uh, will be able to have this and, and, and provide the right level of diagnostic aid. Uh, and then, m more importantly, when's the right time to return them to play? Yeah. And, and treatment. Um, the ability to expedite treatment quickly, that matters why in the case of head injuries? That's a great question, Bram. So right now, we know through epidemiology studies that we're missing upwards of 80% of all concussions that are happening um, on the practice field or on game days. Uh, that's because the current detection me me uh, method is completely uh, visual. You either need to self-report to have yourself checked out by the athletic trainer, or you need to be spotted by a teammate, an athletic trainer, a coach, or eyes in the sky. Uh, if you were at an NFL stadium, they usually typically have uh, physicians looking down on the field. Um, imagine if we could invert that equation and detect upwards of 90 to 100% of all concussions through a simple automated system. Um, this I don't want to get off topic for a moment, but but having this technology and and we've run into this in other ways in less serious um, forms with health in knowing how the body is reacting at all times with wearables as leagues push back their players unions push back to some of this. Are there other things that players would be allowing people to see and learn about their brain activity? outside of what is the immediate need for help when an injury occurs? Well, that gets into, you know, again, I'm, our focus is on clinically validated physiological measurement of brainwave for health. Um, the subject matter of performance is a whole different area that uh, is treated more as consumer product good and there are products in that space. Um, right now, we know we're the only ones that are working on the field to come up with a clinically validated tool. Yes, there's been pushback from players, leagues, coaches with regards to non-validated systems, usually taking the form of uh, motion detectors yeah. or accelerometers. Um, and those have, have, have largely, you know, missed on the opportunity because uh, they, they don't detect in an accurate way what is going on with the health of the brain. They simply say whether your head or helmet are moving fast or not. Um, you're working on a feasibility study with collegiate sports with some funding from, from Harvard. So what are you looking at there? Yeah, what we're really interested in the discussions are ongoing with Harvard right now is to look at um, player, players, monitoring players. Believe it or not, this has never been done. Um, there's never been a controlled study that has looked at real-time data monitoring, largely because there hasn't been a high-fidelity measuring technique. Back in the 60s, Northwestern did take a NASA-grade EEG system and bring it into a quarterback. And so we have a record from, you know, four or five decades ago that it's an interesting tool to consider, interesting tool to consider where Harvard's really looking to go with this. Um, is what is happening on the field? What is happening on the field? How underreported are concussions um, at these days? And, and, and we have the ability to look at helmeted sports, including wrestling, which, which also has a fair amount of low impact um, motion, but one that certainly affects um, 
the health of the brain and the wrestlers. And so what we're trying to do is figure out the right cohort within the university and some combination of both the Ivy uh, leagues and the Big Tens uh, we're, we're hoping and, and currently recruiting for to step up and have an observational study. I mean, like, I don't want this to come off the wrong way be, because I think this is all good. You know, we're, t- we're talking about the health and brain health uh, of these athletes and anyone who's involved in any kind of athletics like this. Um, but I wonder, you know, since you're talking about this rather large percentage of head injuries that are going still unreported, even with all the safety measures, that your products could open Pandora's box even more, right? For the leagues and the and uh, uh, are they pushing back at all at all of this? No, they're, they're actually, there's more interest than ever to have proper health monitoring. Uh, and if you've been following some of the press, there's been a lot of um, legal issues associated with not doing enough. And so there's a delicate balance between clinically relevant and meaningful information that you can actually trust and rely on to help with the health of a player versus not doing enough and being subject to certain liability issues. And that's really going to be a delicate balance that we're going to need to, to, to take on. Um, what we're focused on, again, is providing relevant infor- health information. What they do with that information yeah. is really going to be up to the leagues. And each league is handled a little bit separately. And there's medical monitoring boards for you know from the NFL to the NHL. Um, universities have their own medical monitoring leagues, and it's going to be a new tool and aid in the, the health and wellness of the players. Because remember, these players, maybe they graduate from college and go into professional sports great. Either way, they're still going to be retiring around 30, and they're going to have a whole life ahead of them. We need to keep that wellness in check the whole way through. Um, This may be kind of out of the purview of what you guys are exactly doing, but there are companies that are making helmets and headgear to try to reduce the risk of concussion. So are you working with any of them, or are you working on your own devices to try to help alleviate concussions entirely? Sure. So there's no helmeted system that will be able to prevent concussions. Helmets are designed largely for uh, craniofacial injury um, and, 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 and more blood force damage. They can't protect the brain. Remember, the brain is a soft organ. It's got fluid wrapped around it, and it sloshes in the skull. That can't be protected by a helmet. Um, What we're looking to do is have our platform system available for all helmets, all headgears. And yes, we're working with those companies to make sure that they can be um, installed uh, in a very comfortable way so that you don't even know you're wearing them. Um, with all the innovation and, and rule changes that leagues are implementing and, and this type of technology, uh, do you foresee a trend of head injuries going down? That's difficult to say because we know right now current techniques are challenging. Particularly, there's an, a lot of data that says if you've been diagnosed with a concussion once, you're very unlikely to self-report in the future. Um, and, and this is simply a matter of athletes wanting to continue to play and perform. And we see the same, and we have similar data sets on in the military, where elite fighters want to continue to um, fight for their country. We need to know when is enough is enough, and have the right data available for both the individual and the caregiver to be able to provide the right assessment. I can't say right now whether it's going to go up or down. I yeah. think it's simply going to be another tool in the box 
that we want available to keep the health and wellness of, of both civilians and the military. Um, you mentioned the military here. Um, you're working on this application with them. In, in what ways are you trying to help the armed forces? Sure. So the armed forces, there's a lot of interest in having a very easy monitoring tool for brain health. And the reason for that is, is in the military, whether you're playing a sport at an academy, very similar to a civilian life, um, that, that's a touch point. There's other touch points with hand-to-hand combat training, um, blast attack, blast issues associated with brain health, and they're seeing that the health of soldiers isn't being, at least the brain health of soldiers isn't being caught early enough, and that is a major concern to the military. Uh, and we're seeing the same sorts of issues on uh, military as we do in sports with chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Uh, there's some well-documented studies. The other issue that's rather unique to the military are uh, our percussion forces, and those percussion forces would be from um, improvised devices that explode or from uh, training on shoulder-mounted ballistics or working with large howitzer-style ammunition, both from the, the trainer's standpoint and the ones that they are training. And this has made its way to Congress. Congress has said we need to do more. Um, we need a high-fidelity measuring tool. In the past, that we, you know, blast sensors have been tried. Uh, they were in the field for a number of years and then removed by the Pentagon for, again, not being clinically relevant, so not giving the right data set. There's been some tools that could be used in uh, a medic station um, uh, or a hospital, and, and those are fantastic, but it's still missing everybody else that's, that's being affected on a day-to-day basis and may not have gotten to a healthcare provider. We just want an early alert system to let the individual know, uh, and, 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 and as well as their caregivers, that they should be uh, looked at a little bit more closely. Um, we'll get you back on sports here as we let you go. Um, three to five years, what are the changes in, in what you've made and, and in the technologies, and how will they help athletes? You know, it's, it's the health and wellness of these athletes uh, more than anything else. There's more than enough athletes that want to perform at these levels, so I suspect that the teams will be great, that t- there will be higher numbers on the teams. Um, they may need to sit out a little bit more. We know that there's a 50 to 300 percent chance of, of limb injury in a, concussed, in a concussed athlete. And the return to play for a limb injury can be anywhere from 6 to 18 months, depending on the limb and what needs to be corrected. We also know that if you sit a player after a health concern with the brain, for a couple of weeks or months, whatever the protocol happens to be, we know that they can come back to play very quickly. And so I think we'll see similar to pitchers in, 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 in baseball. They're only allowed to you know, pitch on a rotation every certain number of days. There may be something along these lines where we just have a deeper bench Hmm. Um, and there's somebody else willing to step up and, and, and play and take the ball forward. Yeah, larger rosters. And the NFL just came out this week with potential for an 18-game schedule, and they're saying the players would only play 16 games. And it's interesting that they put that out there that way, um, in that this might be part of it, that they want deeper rosters for the teams to have. No, we're seeing the same, same thing happen, even a greater motion, uh, movement towards flag football. Sports aren't going away anytime soon. They just need to be measured and monitored a little bit differently and then potentially field larger rosters.
and or make the team the the, 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 the team. Yep, health is a certainly a large part of the financial future of the sport and, and the way that they are conducting their schedules now. Harold Stelzer is a co-founder and CEO of Nomo Diagnostics. Thank you so much, Harold. All right, thank you. Up next, identifying that you have a concussion is paramount to treatment. Dr. Daniel Danishvar is up next. In contact sports, head injury is unavoidable, but it does not have to occur at the rate that it did. And if we're talking about the future of sports, and maybe specifically football, intervention in the name of as much safety as possible really matters. Dr. Daniel Danishvar is one of the founding scientific advisors with the group TeachAids on their crash course program. Hi, Dr. Danishvar. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. How are you doing? So what are you trying to teach the public about? So we've identified one of the major problems with concussions is that concussions are an invisible injury. Namely, if somebody doesn't identify that they have a concussion, uh, it's hard to tell if they, they're actually injured. It's hard to tell whether someone's seeing double, whether someone's feeling confused, whether someone's having some memory problems, unless their symptoms are very severe. So we realize that if athletes themselves aren't advocating for themselves, or if their teammates aren't stepping up for the, their, uh, their teammates, then no one's going to really know that this concussion happened. And when concussions don't happen and uh, don't get identified and don't get treated properly, then people end up having longer problems. They end up getting risk of additional injuries, not only to the head, but to the rest of the body. So we wanted to go directly to the athletes to try to solve the problem. And what we did. And, and how are they helping themselves here? Yeah, so what we're doing is we're taking the, uh, the information about concussions and bringing it directly to the athletes and empowering them to help themselves and their teammates. What we recognize is that the uh, concussion education has been pretty lousy so far. I mean, I've, I've been working in the concussion education field for about a decade now, and most concussion education resources are like, old doctors like me uh, doing a voiceover over some you know computer animations or maybe just the model. It doesn't really speak to kids. It doesn't really engage them. It doesn't get them excited. And so what we're doing differently is we're uh, implementing a virtual reality concussion education system. We're finding uh, age-appropriate peers and near peers. So these are college athletes, elite starters, to deliver the message and to get kids excited about the message. And what does that look like? What what does the program teach them? So the the amazing thing about TJs is that it's a free uh, online uh, software, the, the Crash Course Curriculum. And... Uh, what it teaches them is how to identify concussion, what they should do if they think they are the, the teammate has concussion, and what the outcomes and risks are if they don't get their concussion treated. So we have this message delivered, and we, we use uh, state-of-the-art graphics to really identify the issues and show it to the kids themselves. Where are you on some of the technologies that are out there, like eye-tracking after a hit occurs and there's a question whether a, a head injury has occurred? The uh, holy grail of concussion diagnosis would be to have some sort of objective diagnostic that would tell someone that they had a concussion for sure. And there are a lot of different uh, technologies that are trying to be used here. There's eye tracking is the one that you alluded to. There's also some blood markers that are looked at. There's EEG that's also tr- uh, trying to uh, get, get at this real serious problem. The, uh, all of these things, I think, right now are more tools in a toolbox rather than a, a gold standard diagnosis. What I mean is that 
you ultimately still need a clinician to interpret all this information and determine whether or not a concussion happened because uh, none of them are, are that good and that consistently reliable at identifying when an athlete's been concussed. And certainly big-time programs would have the access to some of these things. Obviously, professional teams could have the access to this type of technology, but younger youth leagues don't. So what are you trying to teach coaches, trainers if they have them, and the players themselves about their health? Yeah, so uh, right now Crash Course is just delivered for the kids themselves. Uh, We're going to roll out uh, later future versions that will uh, educate coaches and look at athletic trainers and help them get the information they need. But right now, what we're trying to target are the kids because uh, ultimately, if a kid doesn't speak up about his symptoms or if his teammate who's noticing something concerning in the locker room doesn't speak up on behalf of their friend, then no one's going to know that this injury happened. There's some pretty startling uh, statistics out there. So there have been a number of studies where they ask athletic trainers directly uh, in the last season, for example, in football, how many of your kids got a concussion? And the, the numbers are uh, pretty consistently around 5% of the, the kids had a concussion. And then there are another a set of, uh, of surveys that ask athletes directly, how many times in the last season, say in football, did you get hit in the head and experience symptoms, which is our modern definition of concussion? And the numbers are pretty shocking. In those surveys where they remove the word concussion and they ask the athletes directly instead of asking athletic trainers, the number's closer to 50%. So that represents about one in ten concussions with, with both that, that information being diagnosed. That's a huge gap that needs to be addressed. And these are places that have athletic trainers on the sidelines. So if you don't have the athletic trainer on the sidelines, the numbers are getting even worse than that. You know, this might not be a question for you specifically, but I, but I'm curious since we're talking about it because liability, especially in the medical field, is a huge term, and there's insurance for malpractice and all of these types of, of issues. And we're learning more and more about this stuff. Um, It is out in the press what the result can be if you have too many of them or even one really bad one. And there are a lot of times like you're talking about where if people don't intervene on their own behalf or on behalf of a teammate, they can put themselves in danger by continuing to play when they probably shouldn't. Do you see a point in time where the education of the issue gets out there that the liability falls back on teams, coaches, trainers that allow people to move forward playing uh, when they probably shouldn't? Yeah, that's actually a really great question. It's something that I've, I've been quite focused on. I've spoken at a few uh, national conferences uh, with actuaries asking these exact questions because uh, the issue of liability is a, a huge problem um, and how to price in the uh, long-term consequences of concussion, including um, with repetitive head impacts and CTV specifically. Um, I think right now, you know, certainly there's a huge gap between what we know scientifically and the education that our athletes, our athletic trainers, and our coaches are receiving. And so there certainly still is a, um, a mismatch there, and, and that needs to be addressed, I think, before we can say that there's no liability associated with uh, with the, the lack of knowledge that these that are their current players and athletes have but in fairness to coaches and trainers at this juncture you couldn't necessarily claim they're liable unless there was obvious symptoms that were being ignored yeah so i think that the, big, the bigger question is for the long-term effects of concussions such as cte uh, as we get more and more knowledge about the, the these long-term effects and the fact that this process starts really early on. The 
uh, the question I think is not necessarily for coaches and trainers uh, liability, but it's for the the district and for uh, the insur- the people that are getting the insurance for the t- the programs. Uh, but that's what the actuaries are looking at, and that's frankly above my pay grade because um, I'm just a scientist, I'm yeah. not the uh, the actuary. Um, are you working at all with teams or, or through the groups that you advise on attempts to how to avoid a head injury as best as possible? A- absolutely. So um, I, I, we're, the crash course program is more about uh, identifying the risks of uh, concussion. And identifying uh, when an individual might have had a concussion, identifying the long-term effects associated with concussion. It's not so much about prevention because, you know, frankly, the prevention aspect is kind of out of the athlete's hands. Uh, but there are a lot of low-hanging fruit ways to eliminate head impacts and reduce the risk of concussion. Um, you, you could do that by eliminating the types of uh, drills that are being performed in practice, because over 60% of the head impacts that occur in a given, say, football season uh, occur in practice. So if you can lim- uh, uh, limit or eliminate a lot of those unnecessary hits, then you're going a long way in reducing the number of concussions. So in terms of what we're doing there, um, that's going to be something that we roll out in the next iteration of a Crash Course, where we're, looking, where we're speaking directly to athletic trainers and coaches. Dr. Daniel Danishvar is one of the founding scientific advisors with the group TeachAge on their Crash Course program. Thank you, Dr. Danishvar. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Coming up, Blake Lawrence is finding a way to connect fans and brands to athletes with his company, Open Doors. This is the Future Sport Podcast. Connecting with and now through athletes has changed thanks to the accessibility of social media, and it can be quite a business if managed correctly as well. Blake Lawrence is a former Nebraska Cornhusker football player, and he's a co-founder of Open Doors, D-O-R-S-E, and he joins us now. Hey, Blake, how are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate you having me on. Um, what do you guys do? We provided technology, Open Doors, uh, that helps athletes share content on social so athletes around the world, nearly 7,000 athletes use our software every day to receive content from their partners. Their partners can be their, their team they play for, the league they play in, a brand partner, their college, their alma mater. Uh, and these partners send them photos, videos, GIFs, and, and different pieces of content for them to publish on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Athletes uh, get the message through Open Earth hit approve and then our software does the rest we publish the content automatically for them saving them time but also keeping their feed active um, while they're focused on what they should be focused on which is the field not their phone so we uh, are thankful to be behind the scenes helping thousands of athletes share thousands of pieces of content um, on social media you know each month and around the world we continue to grow our it's free for athletes brand um and our partners are the sports properties, the teams, leagues, and athletic departments who pay us to leverage the software and provide it to their athletes for free. I mean, in general, they they already have the deals with these brands. So, but but do the athletes still get to vet out what is coming to them before they actually share it? Yeah, that's exactly right. So there are really two types of partners that uh, come to Open Doors: those that have existing relationships with athletes. 
and they are looking to streamline the process of helping those athletes share uh, content. So if it's a sponsor like Pepsi, they are have all you know spend all summer doing a photo shoot with Dak Prescott, and they want him to push that out during the season. Um, they'll just come to us and leverage our software to, to uh, send that content to Dak. Or the PGA Tour has a relationship with Roy McIlroy or Tiger Woods, and they just want to simplify the content uh, distribution process. So there's the other side of things where a brand comes in and they do not have a relationship with an athlete. And that's when they are able to look at the 7,000 uh, that use Open Doors and determine which athlete they want to work with and send them a, an opportunity. And if that athlete is excited about that opportunity, wants to work with that brand, then they can just simply hit approve and then we automate the process. So, uh, the athletes always have control over what goes out on their channel. It is uh, the way that maintain authenticity, but also uh, make it easy for them to capitalize on the value of their social media. So outside of obviously the background you had here is as, as an athlete, um, how did you get into tech and software development? I would say that I'm always curious. Uh, so I, I did, I played football in Nebraska, um, started at linebacker for two years in 2008, 2009. Um, and my career is cut short due to concussions. I had four concussions in a little over a year. And uh, one day, just was told I could never play football again. So that's a, a quick transition, and every you know student athlete goes it through that, and every athlete does. At the time, I had started to use Twitter. I was the first guy in the team doing so, and I established an audience. And Ram, you know that Nebraska faithful, they have a a deep passion for their uh, their Huskers. And I had built an audience on Twitter and realized that, hey, I couldn't play in front of this audience anymore, but I can use social media to stay connected to them. So I, I really dove into that, started helping businesses leverage their social media to get customers. And then I got a phone call from Prince Amukamara, uh, one of my best friends at the time. And, and on the team, he got drafted to the New York Giants in 2011 in the first round. And he said, hey, I know you're helping businesses. Can you help me? And um, I said, sure. So that's where all these things kind of collided. My deep passion for staying connected to the Nebraska fan base led me to a, a understanding social media. And that social media brought me back uh, full circle to working in sports. So it's been rewarding. I do not create the software. Um, we've got a team, uh, a product team here, nearly 10 that are behind the scenes actually developing the technology. Um, and I focus on our, our major partnerships throughout sports. Um, let me go back to one other part of this. So you, you solved a problem here between the advertisers and the athletes and the content that they can get out, and you solved it and made it easier for everybody to deal with. But you did mention that there are people coming directly to you to try to get these deals in the first place, so you're not just solving that problem any longer. What's been the transition for you to work in that endorsement, advertisement, agent-type model? You know, and then endorsement advertisement, like that, the world of working with brands and helping them identify which athletes are the best fit, uh, it's, that's a crowded market. I mean, there are many different methods you can leverage to determine which athlete should be the face of your brand. Um, and we aren't going to sit here and claim that we know more than any agency. In fact, a lot of these sports marketing agencies are our customers and our partners. So. Uh, a lot of brands will leverage those types of experts to come in and you know, put together a, an entire endorsement strategy because 
it's not just about social media. Social media is a big part of it. Um, but we do pride ourselves in knowing more about how athletes sharing content on social media has the biggest impact for any of their brand partners. I mean, that is something that we help athletes share more content on social media than any you know, partner or platform on the planet. So that's our area of expertise. So we can tell a brand that this athlete thing, this message at this date, this time will have the biggest impact. Um, and that's quite rewarding. But oftentimes, you know, we work with uh, agencies that they've done all the work and they just need to use a tool to simplify the process. So I'm, we're okay being on both sides. Um, but at the end of the day, like our focus is in helping athletes um, maximize the value of social media. And that's uh, our, our team is prideful, I guess, in the impacts we get to have on a daily basis. Um, I guess this, the answer to this question would be kind of ever changing, but as we, we speak right now, on what platform is there most value for the athlete and the brand to send out the content? Instagram, Facebook, Twitter? Where, where should they be right now? The answer is it depends. But the trend in terms of athlete engagement and fan engagement is on Instagram as it pertains to lifestyle content. So behind the scenes, um, athletes and fashion and the different passions they have, Instagram is really a great connection point there. Now, brands that want to advertise uh, alongside athletes on Instagram are going to have to have a different goal than those that are looking to uh, leverage Twitter because Instagram doesn't allow click-through. Basically, it makes it challenging for brands to take consumers from Instagram to their website to convert them to um, a customer and whatnot, but Twitter is built around linking out to other sites. So a lot of our brands that come in um, that are seeking to drive consumers from an athlete's feed into their sales funnel, Twitter is the best solution for them. If they're looking to simply amplify a message during the most views or engagements, then Instagram is the answer. So the selecting the right athlete and the right platform uh, really comes down to what the goals of the organization are. And we help those organizations figure out you know, which platform, which players make sense based on their goals. Um, for you, what's the goal for the company? What do you see in two, five years? I, I mentioned this earlier, Brett. We are in a position where um, you know, towards the end of this year, we will be publishing more sports content to social on a daily basis than ESPN and Bleacher Report and the largest sports publishers on the planet. Now, we're not doing it through the Open Doors channel. We're doing it through the channels of the athletes who use our software. And the future of Open Doors uh, is really about helping every athlete. Uh, we've, we've brought on four high school partners in the last uh, four weeks, and we are deep in college athletics and deep in the pro sports. And so we have athletes of all shapes and sizes who are leveraging our software to connect with their audience. And if you could have a vision for where this is going, uh, every athlete at all levels of sport, by the time they get back to the locker room, they will have a, a highlight curated and waiting for them to share on social. And that highlight will be delivered to them via open doors. And that's from high school to pro sports. And so we, we really look at this as an opportunity to capitalize uh, 
on the fans' appreciation and connection with the athlete and turn every athlete's handle into a channel where you'll be getting highlights and uh, personal content curated for each athlete, kind of the last untapped, over-the-top distribution solution in sports um, would be athletes. So we're we're on that path. We've got a lot of fun things coming up. Uh, we got a new platform that launches at the end of this month. Um, we rebuilt the software from the ground up for that future that I just mentioned to become a reality sooner than later. So we're really excited about that. Blake Lawrence is the CEO and the co-founder of Open Doors, and you can also see him if you live in Nebraska on NET, which is Nebraska's statewide PBS station during football season, where he profiles his Cornhuskers on the Big Red Wrap-Up. Thank you, Blake. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. That will do it for us this week. As always, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein.